Mamas of America, so good to see you on uh, this Wednesday morning. We are on the 15th of the 16th class of our Healing of America seminar. We had done it. We have stuck with us together for almost four months. For some of you, this might be your second go around. And I really salute you because I had to take this Healing of America seminar many times before kind of I could lock it in and I felt comfortable teaching it. But to be honest with you, the way I got the most comfortable teaching it was teaching it when I didn't feel comfortable. And, you know, that which you teach, you kind of begin to own and you begin as you learn and as you teach, then that that knowledge really becomes your own. And so um, I just really would recommend after we finish this, we're going to give this seminar again, uh, but it will just be on Thursday evenings. We won't be giving it, uh, I won't be teaching it on Wednesday mornings because we're going to start the 12 week cottage series, those 12 introductory lessons. And that will start on October 6th. And we're gonna, uh, I'll share with you these dates a few times. But our Healing of America seminar, once we are finished with this round, will just be taught in the evenings on Thursdays with me and my husband. And it will be 9.30 Mountain Standard Time, 7.30, or excuse me, 9.30 Eastern Standard Time, 7.30 Mountain Standard Time. And uh, so I know that's late for us folks on the East Coast, but it just kind of fits best to teach that time to get the... Pacific times, the mountain times, and the central times. So I started incorporating uh, saying the pla- uh, the pledge with my daughter in our little morning devotional that she has as she eats breakfast. And, and, um, and it's so cute. Every morning she says a little prayer on her breakfast, and then she stands and she pledges the flag she and I together. And uh, it's been a sweet. So I've never done that before with my children in the morning devotional pledge the flag. And so, you know, just know that these little sparks of ideas will kind of strike your mind. And I really do think it's God, you know, speaking something to you as a mother that would be beneficial to your children. And so this little, uh, our little new little tradition of pledging in the morning has, has worked out well. We've been doing it for about a week now. School's been in session about a week So school is back, Labor Day has come and gone, and I have to thank all kids now. Some kids have been to school a few weeks, a month. My children just started last week. I have a girlfriend whose uh, child just started um, yesterday. And so, uh, but I think school is back in session. It's time to hit the books. And we've been hitting the books this whole summer. So I hope you can feel proud of yourself. We haven't taken a break from the books. And I dare say, What we're learning now, I have incorporated and you might want to incorporate in your books, in your studies for the rest of your life. I always equate studying principles of liberty and freedom to studying the Bible. I mean, it's something that I don't just, you know read the Bible one time and say, I'm good. It's just, it's just a lifetime habit of letting those teachings and those words lapse upon you. Cause you're, you have different understandings and insights at different seasons of your life. This is why you, you study your whole life because phrases and words and stories will hit you differently. Same with learning, you know, the stories and the miracles of America um, you know, different ideas will hit you according to what's going on in the world. 
and you will understand, you know, why we're under attack or where we need to shore it based on what's going on in the world at that time. And if we're not constantly studying the constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers and our, uh, you know, personal liberties and rights, when certain things are in, invoked by the government, we might be uh, a, a little asleep to the injustice that is occurring if we're not constantly studying. So we constantly study the word, we constantly study, you know, uh, stories and miracles and the constitution of America so that we're sharp. So, you know, we can continue to defend and understand and to teach other, uh, teach other people, you know, what we know, because a lot of people are asleep. They, uh, they maybe have never even read the constitution. And so they certainly are more willing just to go along like little sheep and do whatever they're told because they don't even know history. And uh, they don't even know that the constitution was written to protect families and to protect their uh, rights. And, um, and so they just think that we just look to Washington DC to be told what to do because they have our best interest in that. I don't think that's the case. And so anyways, I really commend you for understanding that mamas. So I would commend you to keep studying it. And one of the best and easiest ways to study the constitution is to do it in a group because it's fun. You know, everyone has different experiences and different understandings and you share and you learn from one another. And so I think you've experienced a little bit of what that feels like coming on each week with our online cottage meeting. And it even is heightened when you are in a home and you have five, six, 10 women and you're learning together. And it's a, it's a beautiful experience and the spirit of God is there and he increases your capacity to understand and he increases your capacity to, to begin to incorporate some of these things in your homes and in your schools and in your neighborhoods and, and communities and even state and nation. And I will share with you some of these stories about how that transpired in my life. I have attended or taught cottage meetings for 13 years. And I will share some of those stories in the 12 introductory lessons that we will teach starting October 6th, every Wednesday morning from 11 to 12 Eastern Standard Time. We will go through the, um, I don't know if you could see my table. We will go through these 12 introductory lessons and so anyways, okay, we are on seminar number four, section three, four, section three, healing America by restoring, whoo, this is the big one, the big daddy. So the last two weeks, we talked about healing ourselves, healing our homes, our marriages, repairing relationships, what that might look like, and then what we can do to begin to heal and make an impact in our school systems and in our communities and states. And this week, we're going to talk about what needs to be done to heal the Constitution. So, you know, these four books that we've been going through, we're on book number four. You can get them for $12 online. I, to me, they are my treasures. They're fill in the blanks. Um, and I just would refer to them. And as you take these seminars over and over, you just write good notes in there in the sidelines. And, and those notes will be the means of you maybe teaching these Healing of America seminars to the women in your uh, community and towns. And I know you might think, oh, no, I could never do that. I do not know enough about, uh, you know, this to, to teach it. Well, I, I felt the exact same way. So I took the Healing of America seminars several times and I took really good notes 
notes. And then I took the leap and began to teach them in the cottage meeting. And I just read paragraph by paragraph and we just filled in the blanks together. And together as mothers and grandmothers, we figured it out together. And if we had questions, uh, we'd go home and figure out the answers and then come back and report on, you know, what, what that meant, what that part of the constitution meant. And then we learned how to take what we were learning and apply it to our homes. So we brought that knowledge home and we began to teach within our homes. And that was uh, what I, I've explained to you that some of the things I learned in here, I took home and taught to my family, talked to, talked to my husband, and he got on board. The spirit touched his heart. He ran for office. He, he was in the state uh, Senate because of the things that his wife learned in her goddess meaning and brought home. You've heard me tell that story now several times, but it's so sweet to see what my children are doing now being little products of being taught these stories and miracles of America. And, uh, Oh gosh, I could tell you things that just happened, you know, in the last day or two that they'll report on that they're doing in their universities and, and the courage that they're taking to kind of stand up and, and hold their ground. And I really believe they're able to do that because we learn these stories of these great men and women that rose up and had the courage to hold their ground. And we learn about so many of those stories in, in these 12 lessons that we're going to teach starting October 6th. So there you have it. So seminar four is about solutions. Seminar one, two, and three uh, taught us about the constitution as it was, as it is today, and the problems that have occurred. And, and seminar four is about how we can heal the constitution, particularly this section today, section three. So if we don't know how it was destroyed, then we don't really understand why these relevant new amendments that we're going to talk about today must be passed. All right. So, you know, we're not about just putting band-aids on boilerplates, temporary fixes like legislation or executive orders that can be overturned uh, so easily. We want to take a rifle approach, one shot to take care of the problem instead of, you know, these multiple rounds of a little uh, shotgun. We want long-term solutions and healing of the constitution through amendments is that shotgun approach. So remember, a healed constitution is a part of God healing our land. And uh, so seminar two, we, we learned the constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers. They gave us, remember, seven articles, legislature, and then 10 amendments known as the Bill of Rights. And they also gave us amendment 11 and 12. And then we didn't get any more amendments uh, until about 60 years later, just uh, right after the Civil War. We got amendments 13, 14, and 15. Uh, 13 was prohibited slavery. 14 was to give Black citizens all the same rights as, uh, you know, citizens. And then 15, it ensured that Black citizens had the right to vote. Okay. So we got three, those three amendments right after the Civil War. And at that point, Lincoln had been shot. So, but he, he had been working on that amendment number 13. And then we, we went about another 50 years and then we got amendments 16 and 17 that have been especially 
grievous in, in 1913 under Woodrow Wilson. 1913 is also the year that we got the Federal Reserve, all right? So um, repealing the 16th and 17th Amendment is going to be key to healing the um, uh, Constitution. So we're going to talk about that, particularly the 17th Amendment uh, today, and we'll talk about the Federal Reserve and the 16th Amendment next week when we talk about healing the economy and uh, the monetary uh, system of America. Okay, so here we go, girls. Strap in, our, our brain's clear. Someone told me two hours after you wake up is when your mind is most sharp and clear. And so... For most of us, that's probably right now. So this is such a good time to be able to focus and learn and to study. Hopefully we've all been up about two hours. Now it's 11 o'clock my time. Actually, I got, what time did you get up girls? I got up at five this morning. So I've been up, oh dear, maybe I, my window for best learning is diminished because I've been up now about six hours. But I'm thinking for most of you, you've been up about two, three hours and your brain, your adrenaline is fully alert and we are ready to heal the constitution, girls. So here we go. Under, an inspire, under inspired, well-informed leadership, the United States could probably restore the constitution to its original strength in about four years. Now we'll talk about where this four-year number comes from in a minute. To be uh, a success, however, the restoration process must be carefully planned and each phase must be successful and popular, meaning enough people need to understand why some of our problem is the constitution and modern day amendments. And, and so it, it needs to be popularized, this idea of fixing the amendment in order to gain support for the next phase. Now, remember, God was able to win the uh, Revolutionary War with about 3% of people that were engaged and in the fight. So at that time, that was about 9 million. So um, that's not true. 3% of um, uh, our population today, which is 320 million, is about 9 million. Okay, that's where I'm getting that number. So do you think we can get 9 million American citizens to understand and really understand what is wrong with the Constitution. I'm thinking we can. I think we can do this. And so you can see it doesn't have to be a majority. It doesn't have to be, you know, even a, 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 like a big chunk of the population. It just has to be enough. And we, we know that the Lord works through small and simple means to bring about his purposes. And so I congratulate you because you're going to be a part of that 9 million that is going to help popularize this idea that a part of healing uh, our land is healing our constitution. So we need to establish in the minds of those that are going to lead out in the programs that it can be done. So it's, it's not going to be necessarily an easy thing to heal our constitution and it will require probably the same kind of dedication that was placed upon our original founding fathers when they were willing to give so much of their energies, their time, their talents, their fortunes, and their sacred honors for this cause. Remember, uh, Thomas Jefferson said in 1719, we are not to be expected to be translated from disposition, despotism, despotism to liberty on, in, in a feather bed, all right? So meaning anything worthwhile to ensure law and order and freedom and liberty, it's, it's not going to come easily. It, it's going to pr 
probably feel like a constant battle. And that's certainly what it feels like, I think, today. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to think that the conditions today, and, you know, if you read enough newspapers and listen to, you know, watch enough news and your social media feeds, it might be hard to believe that it was the, the, the state of the nation was actually in worse shape in 1787 when the constitution uh, was written than now. In 1789, 1787, 88, 89, inflation was worse than it was now. Disunity amongst the United States was almost at a point of total fractionalization when all those delegates came together in 1787 because they were not working well under those loosely based articles of confederation. And the threat from powerful enemies at home and abroad were even greater than they are now. In addition, the economy was in the throes of a deep depression during that time period in the 1780s. And if you remember, George Washington was so concerned about what was going on in America, he said he wished he had never seen, he wished he had never seen this disunited states. He regretted even being a part of it. It just looked that bleak. So despite the challenges that we're feeling right now in our country with everything going on, the sound principles and policies coupled um, with Adam Smith's prosperity economics in the 1780s. Remember Adam Smith was that Scottish economist who wrote the wealth of nations and he was known as the father of capitalism. So with in 1787, with the principles of the constitution and prosperity economic of Adam Smith, he wrote Wealth of Nations in 1776. Within four years, within the adoption of um, these two things, the constitution and these prosperity economics, the United States began operating in high gear within four years. So I think that's where Cleon Skousen is thinking that within four years, we can turn it around as well because our nation actually isn't in as bad of shape as it was in our early founding. And so at the end of this four year period in 1791, uh, Washington wrote a letter to a friend and he said, the United States enjoys a scene of prosperity and tranquility under the new government that could hardly have been hoped for. Can you imagine when enough people understand what it's gonna to take to heal the constitution and, and enough members of Congress understand the legislation necessary to put forth some amendments, it will not take long to heal. So the whole idea is, is we need to understand how to heal this, uh, parts of the constitution that had been broken then we need to educate uh, people that will be running for office. That means we might have to run for office or we certainly have to vet people that are now willing to learn and to be steeped in, in our founder's wisdom. In order to be successful in healing of America and the restoration of the constitution, we have to have a sufficient number of representatives in both the house and the Senate who are committed to this task. So what can we do? Well. Over the next couple of years until the next election, and we have an election coming up in 2022, we have to be vigilant that we're getting the right kind of people in office that are steeped in the founder's wisdom and can identify some of the problems and the 
disruptions of balance of power that we have right now amongst the three branches of government. So what, what should we do to ensure uh, in the next election that we're going to get some wiser, more constitutionally sound uh, people in office? Well, we need to go to the meet the candidate nights uh, that the caucuses and uh, the political caucuses in your uh, town holds. And we need to go to some of the conventions and we need to watch very closely how these candidates uh, express themselves. And we need to um, see that they become knowledgeable uh, uh, about, um, well, we need to become knowledgeable about who they are. And we have to be willing maybe to write a little check and support constitutionally sound candidates to put a sign in the yard, to be willing to walk and hand out flyers kind of thing. And then we have to make sure the people we vote for are honest, good, and wise. Honest meaning that they will uphold that oath of office that they take to uphold the constitution. All of them take this oath of office to God and to the constitution. So how can they uphold something that they don't even understand what is contained therein? So we have to have honest men and women that know the constitution because they've sworn to God that they're going to defend it. And then we need goodly men and women, goodly meaning godly, that they're going to base what the kind of laws they vote on based on God's law. And we need wise men, wise men and women who are steeped in the wisdom of our founding fathers. So when we say we need honest, good, and wise uh, leaders in office, that's what, that's what we mean. And so those running for office, um, uh, some, some questions that we can ask, they're in the back of the book, there's 49 questions. And, and take a look when you get a chance that you can use to vet candidates. But really, I think you can just ask them when you go to these town hall, when was the last time you read the constitution or what is your understanding of the 16th and 17th amendment and how disruptive that's been to states' rights? What are you going to do to restore local uh, self-government, local control over uh, you know, how our standards of decency, morality, and safety are dictated. I mean, to ask them these kind of questions. And if they stumble and bumble and fumble, that means they're not deeply rooted in the principles that our founders intended, you know? And you can say, what do you, what do you think about amendments nine and 10 that, you know, our federal government should have limited powers and all the rest should, should you know, be referred back to the states. What are you willing to do to make sure that we have a say about our schools and our the way we you know take care of the poor and needy or these mass mandates instead of being it being dictated in um, Washington DC. So you begin the way you ask questions is is changed now and you're going to ask them these kind of questions and you're going to see what kind of reaction you get and you will know girls after being through the healing of america seminar you will know if there is some depth there in their understanding of how we've gotten away from you know limited and carefully defined powers in dc and broader undefined powers for states and local uh, citizens to determine and, and that will dictate, you know, is this, is this candidate worthy of my support? So accomplishing all of these tasks might seem a little overwhelming, you know, getting up to speed yourself and then getting popularizing this idea in your communities and then within people that are running for office. And cynics will say, ha, 
ha, ha, good luck. It cannot be done. And we know, girls, it can't be done without the help of God. But we do know that he wants to just see that we're willing to get on that wall and to begin to learn and begin to teach and begin to share a better way. You know, remember, we've got solutions. We're not just shooting blanks and identifying what's wrong. Everyone is so good with talking about what's wrong with that guy or this policy or the world or this country. But when we begin to study solutions, we now begin to be anchored in hope and we begin to, you know, be a part of the um, solution and not the problem. And ultimately you become a light to others and they will want to know, you know, what you know. And, and ultimately it will be families and mothers and grandmothers and families like yours that will be the boots on the ground, so to speak, when the, you know, the kind of the staff upon which this nation will lean when everyone is running to and fro and thinking like the world is coming to an end. You will know. You you will know what needs to be done, and uh, and that will have an incredible stabilizing force not only within the four walls of your home, but in your communities, in your schools, in your state, and and maybe the nation. Who knows? So restoring the Constitution and healing America is going to require partnership uh, with those who are running for office. And um, those elected in office need to understand that their help is needed. We're going to need their help. So we need these politicians to be talking about, you know, what it's going to take to reestablish the balance of power. Because right now we have a runaway executive branch. We have a president that's way more powerful than he should be in courts that are legislating from the bench and legislative branch that is advocating. Indicating their power to the two other branches. So we need to have constitutionally sound uh, representatives and senators that will say, uh, no, <laughs> you know, we, we represent the voice of the people and any laws that come forth should come forth from our branch. That's what it says in the constitution, not executive orders from president or court decisions from the judiciary. Okay, so let the healing begin, girls, the healing of Article 1, the legislative branch. So I always say, remember, girls, you need to watch that tale of two constitutions. And Viv, maybe you can put that video in the chat again. It's an eight-minute video and a nine-minute video. And it, it, it teaches us what the Constitution looked like when our founders gave it to us and what the Constitution looks like today with all the changes and amendments that have come. And so the founders, we know, set up a House of Representatives to represent the people and the Senate was to represent the states. All right. So the, the senators were supposed to be uh, kind of the watchdog for the states and the states rights. But the 17th Amendment removed that and they made it that senators were also going to be voted in by the public, the citizens and not the state legislature. And so, you know, that remember that eagle and the wing of compassion was the two year was symbolic of the two year representatives. They wanted to hurry and solve all their problems because they only had two years in office. So they wanted to get as many much money and goodies from DC and take it back home and show the people how, you know, their solution oriented. And I've got money for this, this program to solve this problem. And remember the wing of resource was the senators that, you know, they had six years in office so they could kind of let, cooler heads prevail. And they had to go home to um, the state legislature and ask, 
how should we vote for this proposed bill? It's going to cost this much money. We're going to have to pay this much money. Is it going to infringe upon the things that our state, the rights of the people of our state want or don't want? But when we removed the, the senators from being elected by the state legislature and had the senators elected by the people, then our, our, the, the power of the state began to become greatly diminished. And what happens now, instead of the, the senators coming home every week to confer with the state legislature about how they should vote, uh, guess how they're being put into office? They're being put into office by special interests. The first time they run for office, it's the people that vote. But the second time they run for office, senators, it takes $16 million on an average to run. It's special interest, it's lobbyists, it's unions, it's these kind of groups of people, and we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, how that looks, even though on paper we have more red states and on paper we have more conservative voters than um, uh, uh, more liberal voters, we have liberal um, advantages in both the House and the Senate. There's more seats. So it doesn't match up that there's more registered Republicans, but we have less Republicans in office. And it's because people are not putting them in office. It's the big money. It's the special interests that are putting these people into office. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So we see the destruction of the balance of power um, uh, because now um, the states have been diminished the federal government is more powerful. And we also see the executive branch is more powerful because now he can call in senators along with members of Congress into the Oval Office and say, I will give you special favors and packages and monies if you will promote my program back to your state. And so it's one way that senators and congressmen can be assured that they're going to win re-election because now they're beholden to uh, an executive branch that can, you know, uh, uh, um, give them additional fundings and, and no one is watching out for the state. So typically before the 17th amendment, it was the Senator that, you know, he didn't, he, he didn't, didn't need anything from the executive because the executive branch is who was going to put him back in the office. He had to go back to that state legislature and make sure he was representing what that state legislature wanted. And that state legislature made sure they were representing what the people in their neighborhood wanted. And so it was the true voice of the people. Right now we have a, uh, it's all centralized in Washington, D.C. Our, our leaders in D.C., our House members and our senators are more beholden to the money that's going to get them elected. So we think it's the people that are reelecting them, but really it's the money sources. And those money sources typically don't even live in the state that the senator and the congressman are representing. Okay, so what do we do? The state's rights have been compromised. The checks and balances established in Article 1 have been weakened by the passage of the 17th Amendment. Senators no longer have the power or even desire to protect the states because they are elected by the people, not by the state legislature. And, uh, and it's interesting to me, so without this protection by the states and their senators, the states are now left open to government encroachment and senators have no way to stop it. Uh, and so it's interesting that 60% of the states are red, 
So then you would go, well, why wouldn't 60% of the senators in Washington, D.C. be Republican? They're not. It's 50. It's 50-50. It's a split. So 27% of the states are red, okay, more Republican registered voters, and 23% of the states are Democrat. 23 states are Republican, have full control over the legislative and governor compared to 15 Democratic states that have full control over the legislature, legislature and uh, the governor. There are 30 states, 30 Republican states, red states that have full control over the legislative branch and 18 states that have full control over Democrats, the the. Uh, 18 Democrat states that have full control over the legislature. So clearly on paper, we have more states that are red. We have more voters that are red. We have more governors that are red. We have more uh, um, state legislatures that are red, but we still have more Democrats in office. And why is that? Because people are not the ones that are controlling the election. It's the special interest groups. And that 17th Amendment protected the, the senators from being able to be manipulated or bought or controlled by special interest groups. And so we have an imbalance of power. Okay, so the solution would be to reestablish the procedure repeal the solution is to repeal the 17th Amendment and reestablish the procedure of the state legislatures electing the senators. And, uh, and we also would recommend that the Senate senators be paid from the state, not the central government, so that that senator might feel a little bit more loyal to the people who are paying his paycheck instead of to the federal government. Right now, did you know the federal government is who pays the senators and um, the House of Representatives, not the states. So once the 17th Amendment has been repealed, a whole litany of problems would be corrected and states' rights would once again uh, become check, a check on the runaway government. Because what would happen is automatically Congress would now begin to work within just those 20 enumerated powers that are specified for members of Congress in Article One, Section 8, instead of getting involved in education and health care and workforce safety and COVID measures and all those things, all those issues would go back to the states for the states to determine how their children should be best educated, how businesses should be best run, how the poor and the sick should be cared for best at the state level instead of the legislature and the executive trying to uh, tell the states how this should be. Okay, number two, healing of the executive, the president, the executive branch of the United States it's almost like tyrannical government. He's growing, uh, they're growing more and more powerful. And um, if I could recommend, again, watching the most powerful political office in the world by the Thomas Jefferson Center, it's only 15 minutes. And it shows you how the president was only entitled to have six uh, duties and how he oversees just a uh, you know, a scad of um, agencies now, and he, he can't do it all. It's, first of all, it's too much power and money in the hand of one person, and uh, he, he can't possibly do it well. And we've seen how the masterminds of power in the areas of business and labor and banking and tax-exempt foundations 
all of them who we talked about it in seminar three, those master planners who have a goal of working towards this one world order because it allows them to be in control instead of, you know, uh, legislative branch or, you know, governors or that kind of thing. All of uh, these kind of mastermind or mastermind and master planners have tried to capture this branch of the American government. I mean, do you think that, that that's happened? Master planners back in the day were Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, the Vanderbilts, the Carnegies. Today, master planners would be like a Soros or a Bezos. Bezos, am I saying that right? Soros, Bezos. Anyways, Zuckerberg, Gates, maybe even Clinton and Obama. And so, you know, they're all very fascinated with uh, the powers being in the hands of the few, like this ruling elite class uh, of people. And um, this is particularly uh, dangerous. And, you know, having uh, all the power be in the executive branch with diminished power, with the legislative and uh, even the courts, is a dangerous thing and a threat to the people. The president has abused pres the presidents, and I'm not just I'm not uh, ganging up on our current president. Presidents in general, over the last hundred years, their power has grown since the 16th and 17th Amendment. Presidents have abused their office and have shattered many of the chains of restrictions which were originally provided in the Constitution. And you know, I think what we're seeing right now with um, President Biden making such a push for masks and vaccines and the influence that he's having, you know, in the federal government to mandate masks. And, and every time he speaks, he tells people that they're a threat and a danger if they're not vaccinated. There's a psychological influence that he is using that is causing, you know, businesses and universities to follow suit because everyone is so acting on fear that we're looking to Washington DC to direct us. And he is using the influence like a psychological influence. And we are seeing, you know, businesses now requiring COVID mandates and, and universities. My daughter, who was a senior in um, college at the University of Utah, called me yesterday and school was back in person in session after being out for about a year and a half in person classes. And she said, mom, even though mask mandates are not required in Utah, she was the only student in class that did not have a mask on. And she said, it was so interesting. There were so many, I have been vaccinated stickers on the backs of the kids' computers. And so you can see that even though the governor of Utah has banned mass mandates because of the, the power that um, the executive is wielding now, that, that people are looking to him to direct them. And that's fascism, girls. That's when the government controls the means of production and is directing the people. I mean, that's, that's socialism. And, uh, and, and because people are looking to God or, or they're not looking to God for their freedoms and to know how to best take care of their health. They're looking to Washington DC out of fear. You can see how, uh, you, you know, they're being manipulated, they're being directed. And so we're seeing this kind of power also being played out in the State Department and other federal agencies that are abusing their authority over the American people. So the concern is that these presidents for the last hundred years have, are making law 
through executive orders. Now, you know, we might have liked it when President Trump was, uh, you know, passing so many executive orders because he was curing problems at a faster rate than we had ever than that we had ever seen a president do. But you know, his it's not so much maybe that we don't like what he did, but his method was the problem because when presidents rule by executive order, basically they're saying, well, I don't trust the constitution or Congress, so I'm just gonna work around them. And so, you know, President Biden used the exact same method when he was put into office in January, within 12 hours, he passed 20 executive orders. So in order to really heal our country permanently, we have to do things to rein the executive branch in permanently. And so uh, that this is a problem with the executive orders and the solution will be to address, you know, this issue of executive orders. Also, we have to rule uh, reign in these regulatory agencies. So there are 15 regulatory agencies. uh, Actually, no, there are 500 regulatory agencies. There's 15 cabinet positions. There's 500 agencies underneath them and 2,600 programs underneath them. And they can make law for the entire United States. Now that's not what it says in the constitution. It says only the legislative branch can make laws for the people who have voted them into office. And um, we're also seeing presidents enter into executive agreements with foreign countries without going through the Senate to have these treaties uh, formalized. And we're seeing a distribution of trillions of dollars of money that comes in to the government through our taxes, through the 16th Amendment. Remember, the 16th Amendment said that the federal government could go in and directly tax us, whereas before the 16th Amendment, it was up to the states to determine how the people were going to be taxed. And then from that tax money, we were going to pay our part of the federal budget. All right. But with the 16th Amendment saying the federal government can go in and tax us and then do whatever they want with that money for the general welfare of uh, the United States, it really that 16th Amendment put us on the road to socialism, the government growing bigger and bigger and bigger and everyone looking to the government now to solve the problems instead of individuals, local, uh, uh, you know, uh, organizations and the state. And um And also we're seeing billions of dollars in foreign aid that are are being given by the president or withheld. So that puts him in a very powerful position to have so much money. And we're also seeing grants of federal, uh, uh, making grants of federal funds dependent on the willingness of a recipient, a senator or a congressman or a governor to go along with the president's the executive branch's policy. So we saw that with uh, core, Common Core, and we're seeing that probably, uh, no doubt, with uh, vaccines and even critical race theory, that if uh, states will accept these programs, they will get kickbacks or monies. Uh, and with the monies are strings attached, meaning you have to do it the way Washington, D.C., and you lose control of your state and uh, and, and how, you know, your citizens want things to be when you take the money. So the solution would be, what is the solution? It would be um, to restrict the out of control action of the executive branch. A number of unconstitutional powers now granted to the executive branch would be removed with the repeal, first of all, the 17th amendment. 
And then in addition to that, we would limit executive orders uh, only to uh, those orders would apply only to the executive branch of the federal government. And the amendment would also remove authority from the administrative agencies to make laws for the entire United States and citizens, because Congress is only the one who has been vetted by the people and put into office that are allowed to make laws. And, um, and also it prevent the president from issuing any agreements with foreign powers because uh, it would enforce that it's the Senate. And it actually says that in the constitution now, we just have allowed presidents, you know, to make these uh, executive agreements that bypass the Senate to, you know, to ratify these treaties. And so, you know, it's interesting when our guy is in office, we don't really want the executive branch to be healed. So, but, but when the other guys in office were like, oh yeah, we definitely need an amendment to rein in, you know, the president. So it's the philosophy of just a, a big runaway executive uh, branch that is the enemy. It's not the personality. We're not going after Trump. We're not going after Biden. It's just what a president has been allowed to become with with too much power and too much money and too he, he overseeing things that he wasn't intended to see. Okay. And also under the executive branch, Amendment 25 is, remember Amendment 25, it's that presidential disability that if a president is seen to be unfit, he can be removed while he's still in office. And this was passed in 1967. And what it, this does is it completely short circuits the election process and has the potential of putting in a president and a, a vice president that hasn't even been a uh, you know, voted on by the American public. So I've never seen or worried about this 25th Amendment more than I do right now with President Biden, because he is just an, he's older, and he is just more frail seeming physically and mentally. So all it would take would, uh, and it has to be instituted, it has to be initiated by the vice president. So a uh, vice president Harris would have to say, I think President Biden is unfit for office. And if she can convince 51% of his cabinet, that is eight out of his 15 members to agree that President Biden is unfit, then she can take over. She can oust him and she can take over and she can put anyone she wants in as the vice president. Now, according to the 25th amendment, Congress has 21 days to have a hearing on this to really vet and see if he is uh, unfit, but 21 days, we could have, you know, someone in office that, that has not been voted on by the American people. And even still, you know, if, you know, if they want him out of office, then Congress will, will deem him to be unfit. And we've got, you know, we've got a real problem because this could be really dangerous and nefarious um, for, by people who want to control this country. This is how they would get their people in without having to go through an election process. So this 25th amendment is dangerous and it's not necessary and it just needs to be repealed. It just needs to be done away with. Okay, the healing of article three, the judiciary. Uh, the founders were, you know, no nation had ever attempted to set up a court system previous to what we did making this a branch of government separate 
from the king, so to speak, separate from the executive branch. And the founders were really kind of um, worried, not kind of, they were very worried about a runaway federal government. So they assigned a Supreme Court the awesome responsibility of guarding the law, being guardians of the Constitution. But they, they, you know, they wrote the rules for the judiciary very broadly because they just hadn't ever seen this done before, a standalone branch of government being the judiciary. But Thomas Jefferson, he, he they were worried about the Supreme Court. He actually says the germ of dissolution of the federal government is in the constitution of the federal judiciary. By day gaining a little today and a little tomorrow and working like gravity by night until all shall be usurped from the states. He said he, he, it's like he foresaw or prophesied that there could be a problem with, with the courts. And we're seeing that we do have a problem with the courts encroaching on the states and setting the standards of morality, decency and safety for the states. And we saw that in the 50s and 60s when they began to determine that, you know, uh, praying and having Bibles, Bible verses was dangerous for everyone in the United States. And so they banned that. Even if states wanted prayer and Bible reading in their schools, the courts uh, said, no, that, that, was, that was an infringement on the rights of uh, other people. They're irreligious. And we saw with abortion, they determined that abortion needed to be legalized for the entire uh, nation. And we saw that when they made same-sex marriage legal in 2013. So, um, so this is what we're seeing. They are now determining the standards of decency and morality and, and the kind of things that our founders wanted the states to determine. Let the states determine that and those citizens that live in those states. And so... Um, by sad experience, we have seen that they are overstepping their constitutional authority here. So the, the concerns are that five justices can use the most flimsy excuse, as they put in the book here, to dominate national policy and, and constitute the making of new laws without any adequate remedy to protect the people. So if we could get five judges to agree on something, they can, they can set a national standard of morality, morality, decency, and safety for the entire nation, right? Completely against what our founders wanted. And second, the Supreme Courts have usurped authority over the type of cases uh, coming up uh, through the state courses, courts on the grounds of the 14th Amendment. So the Supreme Court is hearing cases that are coming, uh, particularly uh, civil cases, that are coming, uh, that are being appealed uh, into the federal level that should have been handled at the state level. And the, the federal level is overturning state uh, courts decisions. And they're using the 14th amendment, that equal protection clause as a basis to get involved into states uh, rulings. And that's a problem. And uh, thirdly, uh, there's just some judges that have put on the bench that were put on there because they were friends of prison, so to speak, instead of being really competent, they were politically uh, um, selected instead of based on competency. So our solution is to create a new amendment 
to hold the Supreme Court accountable to the Constitution. And this is what it would look like. Um, uh, A decision or decree of the Supreme Court, which violates the original intent of the framers and the ratifying bodies of the Constitution, could be repealed by two-thirds of the House and the Senate. So we, how about we put a check in the balance on the Supreme Court? Just like, you know, um, the president can veto bills from Congress and Congress can override with two thirds of a vote, the, the president's veto, but there's no check and balance. So let's put a check and balance on the court. If the courts decree, uh, make a decision and two thirds of the um, uh, Congress you know, don't agree with that. They can overturn that court decision or even they put here three-fourths of the state legislatures. If they don't think that, you know, Congress doesn't have the votes, you get three-fourths. Now that would be difficult to overturn it, but at least it would let the court members know, look, you know, we we have recourse here if we don't like the uh, court decisions that are coming down. Uh, Section two in this judicial reform amendment could, prevent the Supreme Court from reviewing or reversing or modifying uh, state court judgments in criminal cases involving alleged violation of state laws, which has become final within the judicial administration of that state. So we're seeing, like I mentioned, a lot of civil rights cases are being appealed to the federal courts. So we're gonna start to see a lot of transgender cases that states are ruling one way and they're gonna appeal to the Supreme Court. And so this would just say that these kind of rulings need to be held, uh, that the states are to determine the standards of decency, morality, and safety, and it can't be overridden by the federal courts because this is what we have seen in some of those examples that I gave you. And it also, section three would say that maybe to qualify, make sure we're getting the best justices in, they have to serve at least five years, have uh, served as a judge or three years on a state Supreme Court level, some process of vetting uh, instead of just being a friend of the president. And also maybe having a term limit. Imagine that, a term limit on a justice. So, you know, here in the manual, it gives a recommendation of 15 years to serve. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died last year, she served for 27 years and she died in office at 87. And she began to get more and more political uh, in her last few years. And I'm not so sure she was that effective. So she came in office at 60. So imagine if she stepped down at 75 after serving 15 years. I think I think that's a really good way. These are really good checks and balances on the court. Okay, beautiful mamas, we have one more little area. It's, it talks about the 14th Amendment, how that has been misconstrued. It, the 14th Amendment really was supposed to be uh, a protection of black citizens' rights. But there's, it was poorly written, the 14th Amendment. And so what courts have done is they pulled out phrases like due process and equal protection of laws. And they've used that to punish states. So for example, uh, when gay marriage was passed in uh, Massachusetts, uh, that couple moved to a state that didn't recognize gay marriage and they sued that state because under the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment, they wanted their marriage to be recognized. So the Supreme court got involved and said, yeah, you have to recognize 
you know, uh, Wyoming, their, their marriage. And so they began to, the 14th amendment began to chain uh, uh, down the states. And that's not what the 14th amendment was meant to do. And so it's interesting here, there's some commentary of, about, you know, religious freedoms. And as they began to, you know, tell us that we have to, you know, have abortion laws, or we have to have these kind of laws dealing with morality and dealing with religion, we're not upholding our First Amendments, because now the courts are determining our standards, uh, and what is acceptable, what's an acceptable practice or establishment of religion or irreligion. And so I won't go into that, but it's very interesting. I would read this page here to help you understand how the 14th Amendment has been misconstrued, and that we need um, are concerned that we need to kind of uh, rule in the 14th Amendment. The courts have used the 14th Amendment as an excuse to authorize the federal government and federal courts to become involved in restricting the states from exercising their rights of religion. And so uh, the federal government now is a watchdog over the states using the 14th Amendment. And so the solution would be a new amendment to keep the federal government out of these matters which belong to the state. An amendment should be passed that clarifies that restrictions imposed by the 5th and 14th Amendment apply only to the federal government as they were intended. An additional provision in this new amendment should clarify that the 10th Amendment does not allow the federal government to become involved in the internal operations of the state. Now, girls, this is, this is a lot for our brains and our minds to take in today. These are suggestions uh, and solutions of what a, uh, a repaired and reinstated constitution would look like. Now, I mean, are we saying it has to look exactly like this? Maybe not, but I think this is a really good start. So what we're suggesting here is Healing of America sem seminars, suggesting five, and actually it'll be six new amendments to the constitution that would clarify and restore a majority of the original intent of our founding fathers. So the first would be to repeal the 17th amendment so senators are elected by state legislatures and they're the watchdog in protecting the state legislature. Number two, we would pass a new amendment. And remember, every time you revoke uh, or repeal an amendment, you have to make another amendment that says that just like um, prohibition of alcohol, Amendment 18, and then about 12, 13 years later, they revoked that prohibition of alcohol in the 21st amendment to repeal the 18th Amendment. And so uh, we would repeal the 17th Amendment and call it the 28th Amendment to, to you know, have the, the um, senators elected by the state legislature again. Number two, we'd pass a new amendment that would clarify the powers of the president. So that would be like the 29th Amendment. Number three, we would repeal the 25th Amendment saying we can kick a president out because he's unfit. So we would just repeal that one. And that would be like the 30th amendment. Number four, we would pass a judicial reform amendment. So that would be like the 31st amendment where we kind of, we put checks and balances on Supreme Court's decisions. They could be overturned by two thirds of Congress, three fourths of the state legislature. 
Then number five, we would pass an amendment to clarify the fifth and the 14th amendments, thus reestablishing the Bill of Rights as their original intent. Remember the Bill of Rights were going to be chains on the federal government, not the states. And that is what the fifth amendment and the 14th amendment have been used to do to not only to chain now the hands of the states. And then next week, we'll talk about the last amendment that we would propose. And that is repealing the 16th amendment where the federal government is, is going in and, and, taxing us right now, you know, it would remove that and the states would be uh, responsible for the way its citizens were taxed. And then the states would, from that money, give uh, monies for our portion of the federal budget. So it would take a big budget this size and it would reduce it down to much smaller. And then states would determine how to solve all the problems that Washington DC is now trying to solve and not solve well. And so these proposed amendments would go a long way in the healing of this land and restoring the constitution. Because remember, Mamas, 85% of the constitution is intact. So we don't have to start from scratch like our founding fathers did. I mean, that was much more difficult than what we're proposing uh, to, to be done. So, so this is something, um, moms, I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't get this the first couple of times uh, as I studied, you know, why the 17th and 16th Amendment were so disruptive and what was the 14th Amendment again? And I just didn't quite, quite get it on the first reading, just like you don't quite get the Bible on the first reading, you know, maybe when you're still reading it, you know, 10 years later, you're starting to go, okay, I get it. I'm hoping it won't take 10 years to understand, you know, these, these parts of these amendments that need to, to come forth in order to heal some of the parts that have, have become broken. But as you, as you begin to understand it, you begin to, you can begin to talk a little bit about it. You begin to popularize the notion of, of, um, you know, establishing some new constitutions to repair some of these uninspired constitutions. And so, um, so we would go from 27 amendments to about, I think it would be 33 amendments, adding six new amendments. And I'm not saying this is the be all end all. It absolutely has to look this way, but I think this gives you a vision of, of, you know, like a blueprint uh, to, to go on. So with, um, uh, with us understanding this, then we begin to talk it up amongst uh, our, those that are running for office. And people that love the Constitution, they know they, these aren't new ideas to them as well. Really what we need everyone to do is go through these Healing of America seminars and then let the healing uh, begin because we need our members of Congress to understand. We need our local politicians. We need our governor. We, we need people talking about uh, healing of the Constitution because the Constitution is a part of the tools that God is going to use to heal this land. And so, you know, when we say we could heal this land in four years, that's hopeful. That makes me feel like, Okay, but the work starts with us understanding what needs to be done to heal the Constitution. So, you know, once again, the whole purpose of the Constitution was to protect our rights and to protect the rights of our family from a runaway federal government. And that's what we see right now. 
the federal government is infringing upon our rights and you know the fiery darts are penetrating right into our homes telling us you know uh, making important medical decisions for us you know it almost feels like they're doing that so as we mamas are starting to feel you know this kind of heat this protection of the constitution this umbrella of protection being removed and these darts penetrating into our home not only with you know, mask mandates or vaccine mandates, but godless education, critical race theory that our children are being taught that you're either the oppressed or you're an oppressor. And this censorship uh, culture that, you know, if you don't go along with the popular consensus, you're just blacked out, you're erased. And corrupt elections, I mean, we're feeling these fiery darts penetrate into our home and the moral decay and the acceptance of things that God has clearly said is in opposition to his laws are being uh, touted as completely normal and acceptable in the school systems and on social media and in, and in the media. And we're feeling that our children are under attack because our kids are starting to fall for some of it because it's seemingly so normalized. They're getting it in the schools, they're getting it on social media. Some of the churches are even uh, starting to accept it. And it's a worrisome time. I'm not gonna lie to you. At church on Sunday, a man got up and he said, he felt that the um, times have never been better. And he started to give examples of, I think he even said abortion was down. And I, lo I looked at him like, is this guy, did he smoke something before he showed up to church? You know, I mean, as a mother, I don't feel like it's easier to raise children in a godly way uh, now, you know, than uh, a few years ago. I feel like it's harder than ever. I mean, I have my little nieces and nephews that are doing things and making decisions that are breaking my heart because right now they feel very empowered about their choices they're making. But in 10 years from now, in 20 years from now, that lifestyle, those choices will not sustain them. And it's uh, like we've got to roll up our sleeves, mothers, and we have to fight for these young kids because it is a it is a war. And we can't just sit back idly and say, well, you know, it's, it's their feelings and everyone in society seems to embrace it. No, we're, we're in a full on battle and God wants to know if we're going to stand by idly and be apathetic and too afraid to speak up or if we're going to get on that wall and be willing to take some stones and some arrows. But we're going to stand up for truth, for these principles, for this level of morality and decency that our founders gave us and that this nation was founded on. And as we continue to do that, as we continue to look to God and not to Washington, D.C. to tell us what to do and to solve our problems, we're going to make some inroads. You know, it was so interesting last night in our family devotional, our, uh, we do a little um, Bible study with our kids and uh, with the 18-year-old and the 13-year-old and my husband and I. And we read in Romans about how all things will work towards your good and it will give you experience, but we're going to have to have some some trials in life and uh and i we talked we talked about well what is something hard that we had to go through that in the end made us the people that we are and i shared with them a story about when i was a young girl my mom died and i went for five years with her to her cancer treatments before she died 
And I would drive her to her radiation and she would pray. We would pray together before we left the door to get in the car. And then when we got to the doctor's office, she would get in his office in the little dressing room and she would kneel down on her knees and she would have me do. And we'd pray again before she went in for her little radiation zaps, as she called it. And then when she got out of the zap, she, before she'd even take her little robe off, she'd pray again. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for getting me through this because she was so afraid of what was going on in her life. She had all these kids. She was a single mom. And then I would drive her home because she was so shaky. And I think I was a brand new little driver at 16. We would kneel as we came in our front door. We would kneel again and thank the Lord that she got through it. And so my mama would go on to die when I was uh, 20, 23. And, uh, but her example of a faithful woman is what has anchored my testimony and has anchored my trust in a God who I can turn to when I'm afraid. When I'm afraid. So I shared that example with my kids that how something hard losing your mama is what gave me my strength, my spiritual strength and trust in God. And so, you know, to be able to have those kind of conversations with your kids and those little devotionals, and that's why you pray with them. And that's why you teach them from the scriptures. As we were studying the scriptures last night, it allowed me to tell that story. And then just this morning, as I'm the big 18-year-old comes down, I have like three minutes with him before he gets off to school. And I'm, I'm reading this little story, children's story on Abraham Lincoln. And it talks about how as a young boy, his mother died and it crushed him. And he thought it was so cruel. And it says, because of this, he couldn't stand to have anyone be cruel to animals or to cats. And he couldn't, some of it, even tolerate the cruelty of slavery because of the cruelty that he felt when his mother was taken from him. And it, it almost is like the death of his mother as a young boy almost made him the man he was to rise up and hold this union together when he was trying to get rid of slavery during that civil war. And so even the death of his mother prepared him to be the kind of president that he was during the, the civil war. And so girls, what I'm trying to say is, as you teach your children these stories from our founders and the stories from the Bible, it builds them a reservoir in their hearts when they have to go out and experience some cruelties in the world and the hard things that they know that these hard things might work towards their good and might be a part of establishing their character. Just this morning when I did the little devotional with the 13 year old, she didn't want to go to school today. She came home yesterday, she's in eighth grade. Eighth grade, that's a tough time to be a girl in middle school. And she said, I don't want to go back there, mom. There's just so much drama there. And guess what we read in um, our, our uh, scripture study today with her. I, I, so, I, so I do a little uh, scripture while she's eating her oatmeal or smoothie or whatever. It was on forgiving your enemies, for forgiving them seven times 70 and don't revile or smite them. And so we had this whole conversation about how that applied to her, why she didn't want to ever go back to eighth grade again because the girls were so mean and how she could be kind and how she, you know, could handle the situation. 
And so as we, as we keep our kids looking to God through prayer and through the word, it anchors them in their hope as their little world, things are swirling around them. And as we, you know, make quality family time, as we do those devotionals, we all went to Gettysburg on um, Labor Day on Monday. We took the two kids and our married girl and her husband, and we went to those sites of the Civil War and we studied the museum and it was beautiful, the conversations we had. Do those kind of things that shore them up, that inspire them, that sober them, that help them to contemplate all the men and women that gave their life so that we have what we have and we might have to give back at some point. And then continue to study the constitution. Girls, you're doing it. You're showing up each week. We're, we're trying to figure out how in the world to restore the constitution. You know something that 99.9% .9 of the world doesn't. God is allowing you to begin to catch a vision of what it takes to be a part of the solution of healing this constitution. And then as you do this, God will direct you about what you can do to be a part of the solution. Remember girls, it's been said that 10 small discussion groups in communities will do more to create a new way of life than hundreds of mass meetings with thousands of people in attendance. There is power in what we're doing, gathering together in these cottage meetings. There will be power as you gather a group of 10 women in your home once a week, once a month, and begin to try and figure out these principles and how they might shore up your family and your neighborhood and your school. As you learn these things, God will put upon your heart what you need to do. Maybe it's just, I need to start praying with my children at night. I need to start teaching them a little, a little children's book on history and applying it to their lives. Maybe if we just start by doing that, God will put on your heart and girls, you will be a part of the healing of this land and he will use you and you will be a light on the hill to those that come into your home and they will feel it and they will know it and you will mostly be a light to your children and to your grandchildren and the posterity. And they will probably be able to say, I had a, a, a mother that knew, I had a grandmother that knew. And because of that, I know, and I'm gonna be a part of the solution of healing this land and continuing it and perpetuating it for, for years and decades to come. I, I mean, we know God is eventually gonna come, but I wanna live as long as I can and do as much good. And I want my children to do the same. And when the time comes, God will come. But until then, I want to wear myself out in the service of him and of my family and of this country. And what a beautiful way to live. And what a wonderful purpose to have when you wake up in the morning. And so, girls, I know this is a lot today. And uh, I want you to go back and reread it because it's going to take uh, several times going through to kind of grasp some of these, you know, proposed amendments to the Constitution. But as you do, the Lord will help sink it in your brain and in your heart. I know he will. He did it with me. He'll do it with you. So next week, we have our last class. It's going to be a party. How to restore our, the role of America our economy and in the world. Now, are you serious? How is little old me, a mama, you know, in Chevy Chase, Maryland, or wherever you may live, how are we going to restore America's role in the world and the economy? Well, you will be surprised what little old you can do uh, in our last little lesson into in the restoration of this nation. So mm, thank you so much, ladies. And we will see you next 
weak 